Frederick Julius's Lonely Boy is a 10-episode fictional coming-of-age audio drama. Start with episode one and listen in sequence. If you love it, hit subscribe, follow Frederick Julius on Facebook, or join our email list for exclusive content, free tracks, and episode announcements. Happy listening! Sick Picnic Media presents Frederick Julius's Lonely Boy, a novella in sound and color. Written and narrated by Matt Geiler. Episode 2, More Than Holding Hands. The first time I heard about the Eagle Girls was the summer of 1987, the long, hot stretch between sixth grade and the coming unknown of junior high. I actually don't remember for sure how their names came into our consciousness. One day we were all talking about them as though we'd always been talking about them. The stories about the girls from Eagle were already florid legends by the time we started repeating them. No one knew for sure who heard them first or where. Maybe Trent Tucker, a totally reliable source given that he was the best basketball player among us, the de facto alpha male of our group, and routinely reminded us that he had kissed a girl who used to babysit him hundreds of times. Maybe Jason Ryan, the kind of kid who didn't just collect things but was always the first to have anything, whether it was toys or information, and was always more than happy to let you know it. Also the kind of kid who cheats in poster contests. During our last year at Hamlow Elementary, Trent and Jason had emerged as the arbiters of everything cool, not just for our group, but generally for the entire sixth grade. Every single one of my friends started wearing Converse Chucks because of them. They said black was the coolest color, so about eight of us begged our parents to immediately run out to the mall the same night to get a pair, only to find that when we showed up to school the next day, Trent had gotten a bright orange pair, and Jason was wearing an aqua blue pair that folded over at the top to reveal a bright yellow interior. Nobody remembered seeing these in a store anywhere. He'd probably special-ordered them and been sitting on them for a week. He did the same thing with Star Wars figures and baseball cards. The end result was that we all looked like clueless, prepubescent outsiders, and they looked cool, which of course was the point. So as far as a bunch of 13-year-old boys who hadn't so much as held the hand of a girl were concerned, Trent and Jason's authority in these matters was pretty much beyond question. The Eagle Girls, they said, were different. They'd done things that were still only half-formed vapors winding through our imaginations. During lunch recess the last day of school, Trent elaborated on their intimate exploits while Jason kept punctuating his revelations with their names, murmuring them over and over like a mantra. Whatever these girls were doing, I knew it was more grown up and important than my summer schedule of swimming lessons, vacation Bible camp, and baseball games. Their names. Even their names sounded outside of our world. Lisa Savage, Christy Carnera, Neil Pepperall, Angie Desiree, Jillian Golightly. 
I imagine they existed independent of any parents or siblings, each girl her own engine of action. I thought that maybe they didn't even live with their parents, or only part of the time anyway. Maybe they had their own apartments. Maybe they traveled. Just from their names, I was certain that they did what they wanted whenever they wanted, and with whomever they wanted. Without having met them, I suspected they moved through the larger world like a rock band on tour, only returning to Eagle during lulls between mind-blowing adventures. They probably had a special arrangement with the school that allowed them to attend when it was convenient. They probably smelled like sandalwood. Savage. Carnera. Pepperall. Desiree. Go lightly. Their names actually sounded utterly different than the girls we hung out with at Hamlow. Before the Eagle Girls captured our waking thoughts, we traded notes with Trish Appleby, exchanged nervous smiles and laughs with Julie Johnson and Kelsey Rogers. At the school carnival, we loitered around the cotton candy machine, pooling tickets to see if we had enough to get locked in the jail cell with Kathy Anderson or Shelley Dalton. Can you hear the difference? According to Brian Draper, the Eagle Girls had done stuff. He told me as much during a particularly dusty baseball practice before the last game of the summer when we were taking infield. Brian was our ace on the mound, could already throw a curveball, and played shortstop when he wasn't pitching. I actually trusted him more than Trent or Jason because he read as many books as I did and actually liked to talk about it. He also liked to listen to old records, and even though literally every single inhabitant of Waverly under the age of 17 that summer had a copy of Bon Jovi's Slippery When Wet and was hell-bent on playing Living on a Prayer on continuous repeat with the compulsion of some children of the corn-like cult, he was borderline oblivious because he had discovered Creedence Clearwater Revival and was extolling the virtues of Green River and Run Through the Jungle. He didn't even like Chuck's. He did his own thing. What stuff, I asked, as our coach belted a grounder to him at short. He scooped it up and tossed it to me as I stepped on second and slung it to first. More than holding hands, he smiled. I didn't know what more than holding hands was. I mean, I knew that to kiss someone meant that you really loved them. I had imagined it happening several times while I listened to Beach Boys records, which is what I had been obsessed with that summer. I'd even practiced on my own forearm once or twice, but I didn't know what it really felt like with another person because I'd never done it. As a hot strike of August wind raised a plume of infield dirt to my nostrils, it occurred to me that maybe Brian had. Oh, they've done pretty much everything, agreed Sam Wilson, ambling over from third base. Sam had a gigantic silver bullet glove with the Coors Light logo on it that was twice as big as his head. His dad was a beer distributor whose contribution to the team at the beginning of the season was to give every kid on it an official Coors Light silver bullet baseball glove, turning the whole team of 12-year-olds into a walking advertisement for Coors Light for two weeks, until the heads of the Waverly Rec Committee got so up in arms about kids promoting alcohol use that he took them all back and promised to stop driving his beer truck to the games. Sam also had gigantic brown eyes that made him look like he might cry even when he was smiling, which he was, widely. 
Believe me, everything. I looked to Brian. In the mysterious pre-established hierarchy of my male friends, he was second only to Trent Tucker. But Trent didn't play baseball and he wasn't there, so Brian's confirmation or denial would settle things. Yep, he laughed. They've done it all. Everything. Hey, Mom, I began nervously, my empty hands behind my back like I was hiding something, swaying a little from side to side. What does going all the way mean? My mother looked up from her yellow legal pad and typewriter and smiled at me the way she always did when I interrupted her work with a question or needed her help right at that moment, slight and amused, while her eyes warmed glancing up and to the right as she thought about just how to answer. Sometimes it felt like she was glad to take a break from work. Where did you hear that phrase? I'd heard it a lot of places lately. The guys I played ball with said they couldn't wait to go all the way. One day when everybody was down at the pool, we overheard Pritchard Deerberger ask Tommy Crum during the safety check if he and Kim Gable had gone all the way. Richard and Tommy were high schoolers who played football and didn't really swim. They just loitered around outside of the pool in cutoffs with no shirts or shoes, smoking cigarettes and giving menacing looks through the fence to little kids as they'd walk to the showers. We heard Tommy laugh and say yes, he and Kim had gone all the way twice, and then watched him flick his cigarette butt through the fence onto some kid's toe and not even care. I even heard a song on the oldies station by the Raspberries called Go All The Way with super crunchy guitars and floating harmonies and this lyric about how going all the way had changed the singer from somebody cruel and mean into somebody who's come alive. It seemed like all at once some version of going all the way was hanging in the humid late summer air, threading through everything I touched and everyone I knew. Just around... I responded, going into none of this. But I don't know what it means. It's a way of describing the most intense physical love you can have with another person, Mom calmly explained. Not a particularly informative description, but it means intercourse, sex. I knew about sex in the technical sense from a book called Your Teenage Body that my parents had given me in an earnest attempt to help me understand puberty. The chapter on the reproductive organs explained it all with clinical descriptions and hand-painted watercolor illustrations in the style of those sketches from Leonardo da Vinci's notebooks. That much stuck with me, but there was a part that mentioned that sometimes teenagers called pubic hair pubes, and I started laughing so hard in the backseat of our minivan that I never really went back and finished that section. I just fell over on top of my brother Patrick, gasping for air and cackling out the word pubes while my face turned purple and my mother gave me a horrified look in the rearview mirror. Pubic hair, or pubes as they are called by some teens, is exactly how the book put it, and the idea of nameless hordes of teens running around saying pubes cracked me up so much I just started saying it as a one-word answer to every question my mom would ask me. Good morning, Freddy. What would you like for breakfast? Pubes. And then I'd fall on the floor holding my ribs and guffawing while she shook her head, made the toast, 
and said that she'd had just about enough of that nastiness. I knew from church sex was only for married people, but for some reason I had never thought that's what going all the way referred to. I hadn't connected them until just then. Sex was how married couples made babies, and in my mind that galaxy was as far, far away as Tatooine. Going all the way was happening right in front of me, but it was also wrapped in that thick haze that permeates the adolescent brain, allowing you to suspect it has something to do with kissing, but never associate it even slightly with sex. Have your friends been talking about going all the way? My mom pressed. Kind of, I fibbed. They keep talking about how the Eagle Girls have gone all the way and done everything. My mom's brow furrowed and her lips tensed, a sure sign that she thought something was suspect. Do any of your friends know the girls from Eagle? Not really, I managed. But Trent and Brian said that... I trailed off as mom removed her glasses, swiveled toward me in her chair, crossed her legs, and leaned forward so her elbows rested on her knee. We were now going to have a conversation. So then, how do Trent and Brian know what the Eagle Girls have done and haven't done? She inquired, squinting her eyes as though she was trying to make sense of things or solve a puzzle, when in reality she already knew everything she needed to know. Has anybody talked directly to the Eagle Girls? Are they close friends with anybody who talks directly to these girls? Do the Eagle Girls have names? Here's another question I have for you. How do you think the Eagle Girls might feel if they found out a bunch of boys they don't even know are telling all sorts of stories about them to other boys they don't even know? Sometimes these conversations were really full-on investigations. In 1970, four years before I came on the scene, my mother was a rising young student journalist who made a name for herself covering the abduction and murder of a college co-ed at Iowa State and whose tenacity and snappy prose style had not only scooped big papers like the Des Moines Register and the Omaha World Herald, but gotten her noticed by the Associated Press, which offered her a job straight out of school. But she was also marrying my dad, an architect who disapproved of that pursuit so much he used to lurk around the campus press room at all hours of the night, scowling at my mom's hippie journalist friends and generally making everybody uncomfortable. So she became a high school journalism teacher instead. To my father's exasperation, though, this had done nothing to quell her passion for storytelling or her insatiable need to drill down to the truth, no matter the cost. Even after moving us out to the country and sequestering her in the rural lockup of our acreage, she had lost none of her almost preternatural ability to ask all of the questions that mattered. Do you think the Eagle Girls have gone all the way? The chorus of the locusts in the fields filled my dithering silence. I don't know, I said, looking down at my feet. Well, have you gone all the way? She asked. As I looked back up at her, I could feel my ears tingling and becoming engulfed by the itchy, hot pink of embarrassment. I shook my head while my eyes teared up. No. I cried. Ashamed for trading in the half-truths of my friends, I collapsed into my mom's arms. After a few minutes, she gently straightened me up. These girls, she started softly, 
are the same age as you, doing the same things you are. Hanging out with their friends, going to camp, playing sports, listening to music, going to the pool, and enjoying their summer. They've got a lot to do without worrying about going all the way. I suddenly started to feel like I didn't have to care about it as much either. But, she continued with her hands on my shoulders, even if that is on their minds, it's nobody's business but their own, okay? Okay, I nodded. I think I'm going to go back into my room and listen to the Beach Boys and draw. Okay, Mom smiled. Bring it out and show me when you're all done, and we'll hang it up. The very next day, an invitation addressed to me showed up in our mailbox. This, for some reason, probably only known to whoever had lived there in the 1930s, was located a whole half mile north of our property. You had to spend about 20 minutes trudging the edge of the gravel road and running down into the ditch to dodge speeding grain trucks every afternoon just to bring in the mail. I never understood why they didn't just put it at the end of our driveway, which itself seemed like it was a mile long already. Plus, there was hardly ever anything for me in there, so it was usually a lot of walking and dust inhalation and truck dodging for nothing. The invitation was to a party at R.J. Leffert's house. I had met R.J. earlier in the spring in a photography class that we both took for this arts camp called Pen, Palette, and Polaroid put on by the Waverly Arts Foundation. My dad called it a daycare run by disgruntled teachers who couldn't write, draw, or take pictures and didn't want me to sign up for it. But my mom said he was just mad that they didn't give him an award for the poems he sent into their yearly poetry contest and signed me up anyway. RJ was one of the cool kids from Eagle and, as such, was the direct counterpart to the guys I was friends with in Waverly. He was tall and blonde and his muscles were visibly distinct entities that announced their presence from underneath his Varney t-shirt with an easy authority that my pencilish body lacked. If there was a fence between the fields boys play in and wherever they go to turn into men, he had clearly climbed over it. He was the first person from Eagle I'd met outside of the grainy black and white pictures in the yearbook that provided us with tiny square glimpses of the girls we'd heard so much about. RJ was friends with all of them. At my baseball game later that night, we discovered that we'd all gotten the same invitation. The party was going to be a gathering of basically everybody who was in, and somehow the eagle element had recognized me as one of the copacetic. By the time I was positioned at second base, my obsession with my batting average had disintegrated into the dirt under my cleats and was replaced by a tingling fuzz running up from my calves and a cycling montage of five school pictures. Lisa Savage, Christy Carnera, Neil Pepperall, Angie Desiree, Jillian Golightly. In three days, I would see them in real life. As my mom drove me up into the Lefferts' neighborhood, I realized that my conception of the kids from Eagle as hard up was a little flawed. RJ's house was in a development called Firethorn, a massive new subdivision rising out by the highway that wasn't even in Eagle. It was populated with enormous house castles that rose up out of a canyon-esque labyrinth, 
each one a glittering citadel that would take a hundred of my dad to build. You could feel the money as you were driving through. Compared to anything in Waverly, Firethorn was opulent. Compared to Eagle, it was Beverly Hills. By the time my mom dropped me at the end of RJ's driveway, I was swimming in a sudden sea of self-consciousness. I wondered if people who lived in a place like this could tell what kind of house you had just by how you moved or breathed. Would it show that I'd never been in such a resplendent residence? If I looked around too much, would they realize we had nothing? My group of guys was gathered in a closed circle in the front yard, no doubt engaged in a preliminary powwow before mingling. Trent Tucker was doing most of the talking. Hey, Freddy, he offered with a quick head nod, grabbing my hand and drawing me into the circle. Hey, Hey, Freddy, followed the inevitable chorus of the rest of them, parroting the chief. The girls are all in the back, Brian informed me. I knew instantly who he was talking about. Are any of our girls here? I asked, and immediately felt idiotic for sounding like I possessed anything other than a palpable anxiety and a questionable haircut. Some of them, said Sam. They're inside, but everybody from Eagle is around the back. Just remember, Trent reminded us, we creamed these guys in basketball. We all nodded at this reaffirmation of the superiority of Waverly and of us, soothed and inflated by the absurd idea that the Eagle girls would care anything at all about our recent athletic accomplishments. That's when I realized every single one of us was nervous, scared of finding ourselves out of our league, scared of coming face to face with these girls who, up until now, were puerile inventions, conjured and imagined from the scantest details by children fumbling in the dark. Right then, RJ appeared in the front yard next to us, moving into our circle and displacing Trent as the male of highest status without the slightest effort. His smile was welcoming and bemused. He reminded me of one of those wealthy businessmen on Miami Vice who glad hands Crockett and Tubbs as he welcomes the detectives onto an outrageous yacht laden with an excess of hedonistic spoils. The kind of energy that says, you guys have cute little lives, but let me show you how we do things in my world. It was his house after all. Do you guys want to come back and meet everybody? He asked. Yeah, Trent volleyed back as if he was still in any way driving the bus. Let's see what's up. I don't know if the rest of my friends were as breathless as me while we traipsed down by the side of the house. My temples were pleasantly throbbing timpani urging me forward. The sun was setting behind us, and I noticed the sudden change of all color from crimson cradled to cool blue-gray. Nearing the corner, I could just see hanging lights entwined with tangled trees, and the music from there tickled the infant night like wind chimes, a light trisp through the lighter evening breeze. My feet seemed to be dragging and pulling me at the same time, and my stomach was twisting in on itself. Then we emerged into the gathering rhapsody of the backyard. All five of them were already walking toward us. I had the unusual sensation of being drawn into the light, even as I was arrested and held back a little in the shadows. My friends obscured into floating navy figures, 
formless intrusions into the lens. The girls seemed to arrive at the brightest spot on the lawn together and in unison, with rhythm guitar doubled on top of churning cellos and fuzz bass bathed in reverb and tied together with more strings. Slow motion in real time that erased without mercy whoever else there was, suspending all movement but theirs and accelerating the beat in my ears. Castanets, Christy Carnera, Lisa Savage landing in the light as the shuffle skips a little, Joe Neal Pepperall, electric pulse of pure analog, Angie Desiree. Jillian Golightly was right in the middle of them, burning without hesitation, her voice easy and weightless as she flung it out like a blanket, her chestnut eyes flashing. Hey guys, it's great to finally meet you. Hi, Hi Jillian. Jillian. We all spat out in unison like some dumb captive sitcom audience being told how to respond by giant cue cards. <laughs> you can call me Jill, she grinned. Everybody does. These are my friends. This is Lisa, Christy, Angie, and Joe Neal. It was Lisa, Christy, Angie, and Joe Neal. They flanked Jill like the entire moment had been art-directed each of them displaying a confidence I had never witnessed before, a power that just was, and that boys end up spending entire lives trying to obtain, usually only to end up frightened men pretending to be presidents. This was evident from a quick glance down the line of my friends, all of whose mouths were hanging open like frightened fish encountering sharks for the first time. It wasn't just that all five of the girls were beautiful, or that they wore their hair careless and sweeping, or even that their shorts and skirts revealed unprecedented amounts of curving skin. It was the way they stood in themselves, breathing evenly, looking you in the eye with smiles at once warm and skeptical, but reserving judgment from a place at which none of us had yet arrived, ardent, alive, and unashamed. You guys don't have to stand 20 feet away, smirked Lisa. We don't bite. Christy and Joe Neal laughed and leaned into each other, looking our bewildered assemblage over with arched eyebrows. Everybody moved toward them maybe a full inch. You're supposed to be like the studs of Waverly, right? This unimpressed appraisal came from Angie Desiree, who was smiling like she'd just discovered that the man behind the curtain was a 12-year-old boy. In our case, there was no curtain, and it was clear who was in control. We beat you guys in the championship, Trent bristled and crossed his arms. Angie's face fell into full-on contempt. No, you beat RJ and Chris in the championship, she volleyed back. Like that has anything to do with anything, and if you're just going to stand there staring, I'm going inside. I don't think even Trent's mom talked to him like that. We heard you guys were these big bad ball players all summer, Jill chuckled. But you look like just regular nice dudes. That's the name of your band, chortled Joe Neal. The Nice Dudes. The Nice Dudes World Tour, Christy sang out. She and Joe Neal collided into each other again, fusing their peals of laughter while our entire starting lineup stood there not getting it. Angie rolled her eyes but stayed put for the moment. Anyway, started Jill. It's really cool to meet you. It's rad that we're all going to be going to school together. 
Although each of us had spent a good deal of time wondering if it really was going to be rad or not, this declaration from Jill seemed to give us all the push we needed to approach, which Trent and Brian did so eagerly they tripped over their own feet and bumped into each other, just as quickly pushing each other away, momentary enemies in the midst of their mad scramble for treasure. They closed in, bringing everyone except me with them into the blended bouquet. I held back ever so much, half out of nervousness and half out of a sense that I was existing outside of time to observe, document, and take in every detail as my friends were plunging in. The brightest spot in the yard was burnished further by the two groups rushing together, crackling enthusiasm on top of enthusiasm, wedded by the pure energy of youth and the new. Jill was in the precise center of this surge, sparkling and bright with approval. I don't think anyone had noticed that when she said the word together, she was looking directly at me. After that, nobody spent very much time in the backyard. The Bengals walk like an Egyptian wafted down from the garage where RJ had set up a stereo and we all drifted back around the house to the driveway where the main thrust of the evening became evident. The dance began. Aside from the song that got everybody up there in the first place, very few up-tempo tunes were played, and it seemed like this was by design. Simple sixth grade math, dancing to slow songs required coupling with a girl, and by definition, included closer than normal proximity with their faces, hair, and bodies. But there's slow dancing, and then there's slow dancing. The first is the kind I was doing with Julie Johnson during Gregory Abbott's Shake You Down, and which has become the standard trope in film and TV depictions of junior high dances. Boy and girl frozen in a wooden, rocking parallel at literal arm's length while avoiding looking directly into each other's eyes like the plague. Not necessarily the absence of anything sexual, but definitely the paralyzation that comes with utter fear of it like the slightest syncopated movement will cause both mannequins to spontaneously combust. Terrified. Angie Desiree was engaged in the second kind. She was dancing with Chris Dilfer, who, like RJ, was one of the Eagle guys and strutted around with the confidence of at least a 17-year-old, arms held out slightly from his sides, and chest elevated up and out ready to lift something heavy or fight someone at all times. He was short and muscular and had enough actual facial hair that he'd already started shaving. Another man-boy whose parents had a lot of money and lived in another affluent neighborhood nearby called Pine Lake. It made total sense that Angie was dancing with him because she, and this can be offered without any exaggeration, had the body of an adult woman. Of all the Eagle Girls, Angie Desiree was the most intimidating in terms of development because there was no physical difference between her and a senior in high school. She just looked a lot older and carried herself that way. There wasn't even a remnant of the little girl she was maybe only a summer ago that often lingers in the face around the eyes or in the impulsive gait or the unconsidered composure of a young woman just beginning. Angie danced with Chris in total possession of and at complete ease with herself. Her arms were wrapped around his neck as much as they could be but were still loose and liquid. 
One hand was rhythmically rubbing the back of his head, the other exploring his upper back from the shoulder downward. Wreathed in bleached curls that softened into dark roots, Angie's head alternated between resting squarely in the curve of Chris's neck and moving up so that their foreheads were touching, at which point her gaze anchored itself on the perilous closeness of their hips. Her whole flexuous form against him was the slow cadence of discovery, the very rhythm of how it feels to feel. Peachnut top, sleeveless, white shorts ending where her thighs began, white tennies, no socks. The more she moved, the more she smiled. I wondered how it felt for Angie Desiree to feel how you felt against her. I had been standing there watching her dance for probably three complete songs before I realized that Julie had disappeared. Somewhere in the middle of Berlin's Take My Breath Away, I don't remember which time because it played on continuous repeat for at least half an hour, I shifted my gaze away from Angie and noticed that the distances between the rest of the Eagle Girls and their partners were the same in that there was none. They all seemed wrapped around whatever boy they were dancing with, ribbons of motion finding freedom and release, and further encouraged by the fact that the lights in the garage had been shut off, all the intertwining forms now only illuminated by a sputtering strobe. As I took it all in, I wondered what RJ's parents would think of how these girls danced. I knew what my mom would think. But even as that occurred to me, I found that there were no parents around. I'd been there almost two hours and hadn't seen any adults. It wasn't long before I noticed, almost by accident, that my mom had pulled up in front of the house. I thought I should probably tell RJ that I had to leave, but when I turned to find him in the garage, he was already looking right at me. He was enveloped by a very agile and very eager Jill Golightly, securing her around her back, one of his massive arms serving as a firm but indulgent clamp. His other arm was raised to wave goodbye to me as if he was aware before I was that I had to go. I could see him grinning in the fluttering blink of the strobe, confident that he had shown me something I'd never seen before. I waved back and he ended his masculine send-off by performing what looked like a nonchalant salute as I turned to go, which I thought was a little odd. Even odder was Jill's almost imperceptible glance and the upturned corners of her mouth. As RJ turned her so his back was to me, she lifted her fingers from his shoulder and waved goodbye to me too. I hurried to the car beaming because I knew RJ hadn't seen it.
This episode of Lonely Boy is brought to you by Sick Picnic Media. To us, you're not just a listener. You're part of this journey now, too. For exclusive updates, sneak peeks, and maybe even a free track or two, hit subscribe, follow Frederick Julius on Facebook, or sign up for our email list. Don't forget, we release new episodes on all your favorite podcast platforms every Friday. Until next time, wherever you are and whatever you're doing, it's always a good time to imagine anything. Peace and much love. Please note, Lonely Boy is a work of fiction. Names, characters, businesses, places, events, locales, and incidents are either the products of the author's imagination or used in a fictitious manner. Any resemblance to actual persons, living or dead, or actual events is purely coincidental. Copyright 2023, Sick Picnic Media. All rights reserved, including the right to reproduce, distribute, or transmit in any form or by any means. For information regarding subsidiary rights, please contact Sick Picnic Media.